Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards. So it's been a little bit and it's going to be a little bit longer. I've got some great interviews that are in the pipeline, some that are coming up down the pipeline, but I wanted to go ahead and this week present to you, which is the talk that I get asked to do the most. Several years ago, this talk is about two years old, I did uh, a lot of research on studying how Christians should view and understand the gay and lesbian and transgender movement. Now, you'll hear basically where this movement started from, why it became so popular so quickly, and how we as Christians can love our gay LGBTQ friends and neighbors in a way that doesn't um, dismantle the truth of Scripture but also doesn't destroy people that we're trying to encourage and help. So I want to give you um, Jesus and the Transgender Teenager is the name of the talk. Here we go. I thought I would talk first this morning because uh, I want to wake you up a little bit. So we're going to talk about Jesus and the transgender teenager. Because when it comes to things that you guys interact with on a fairly regular basis, as you profess your faith in Christ and tell people that you're a Christian, one of the number one objections you're going to come to is how Christianity relates to these topics about how do we minister, and I don't want to say deal with, but how do we minister to those who uh, identify as gay, uh, homosexual, transgender, bisexual, whatever it is, in your schools. You might have a cousin, a family member, even a brother or sister that identifies that way. And that has been a huge cultural shift, and the church is really playing last-minute catch-up, trying to figure out what to do. What we tend to do is we just kind of isolate ourselves, and we just say, well, instead of hanging out with any of those people, we're just going to hang out with our little Christian friends. Well, what that does is it keeps us from growing as believers because we've removed ourselves from any kind of challenge to our faith from the outside. And we've basically just said, well, it doesn't matter how you live, we can't minister to you. So what I want to do is I want to give you some tools today, and I want to kind of help explain how we got here and how we as Christians kind of, kind of interact with that. And it goes far beyond just trying to tell people, well, you're a sinner and um, what you're doing is wrong because the Bible says so. It goes down to the very core of who we are and how we see ourselves. So the goal is not to give you like ammo for your shotgun to go out and blast the unbelievers, right? If anything, I want to give you some arms that are a little bit longer so you might hug people that you might not normally hug or engage with. So, uh, the college word for today is epistemology. And epistemology is how do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? Because whether we think about it or not, you're not born into a blank canvas, right? Everything around you, um, sometimes when we uh, grow up, we just kind of assume the way things are uh, when we're a young adult or a teenager, that's just the way things have always been. And we don't spend much time thinking about, wait a minute, how did we get to where we are? So you're not born onto a blank canvas. The world before you painted kind of your beliefs and these preconceived notions about what you're going to think is true. And the generations before you kind of set the uh, train rolling down the tracks for how we're going to view society and how we view each other. So I want to give you just a kind of a brief intro in how we got to where we are and why the world thinks the way it does regarding sexuality, right? Um, we know as Christians why we believe what we believe. We know how we got here. We know that God's word is true. We know that Jesus Christ died and rose again, you know, giving credence and verifying the Old and New Testament. And we know that God created them male and female, right? And he told them to be fruitful and multiply. So the way we see sexuality goes way, way back. And the way the world sees sexuality goes way, way back. So there was, um, in the, around the 1950s, uh, even as early as the 1940s, a thing called the sexual revolution. It kind of peaked in the 1960s with, you know, the hippies and the love fest and Woodstock and all that stuff. But there was a guy who was at the forefront of the sexual revolution, and his name is Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey is considered the father of the sexual revolution. In 1948, he wrote a book called Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. Um, he was a zoologist. So his 
area of expertise was not humans and how they relate and their sexuality. He was a zoologist. He studied animals. But he wrote this book and it became a huge bestseller. It sold over 200,000 copies in like the first two months. So it was a New York Times bestseller. It was hugely influential. Before his book, when it came to sexuality, people had been trying to press an agenda or move an agenda forward, but they didn't have one thing on their side. They didn't have science. Alfred Kinsey was the first person to come out and do a scientific study regarding human sexuality. And his findings were so dramatic and so different than what everybody had thought, it literally changed our entire culture. Your grandparents might be familiar with his name. He was a household name. But in the book that he wrote, he did a study, and he, what he was trying to do is what we say is normal sexuality is not actual normal sexuality. Uh, he did a study, and he came out, and he came to such conclusions saying that uh, affairs were good for marriages, and prostitution was a healthy part of society. He also argued that children under the age of 13 should be encouraged to be sexually active. He had a lot of different results and findings that I wouldn't even dare speak about in public because they're so perverse. But it came, uh, he says, homosexuality, is normal. have you ever heard the statistic that one in ten per people are gay? Have you ever heard that statistic before? That comes from his study, that one in ten is, is born gay. That comes from him. Now, when it came out, it was uh, pretty widely accepted. And all of a sudden, people started to say, see, see, all these things that you thought were wrong are actually normal. Well, it wasn't until uh, he wrote another book in 1958 on women and sexuality, but by the time that book had come out, the truth about his research had been exposed. It turned out all the stuff he did in the name of science wasn't really scientific. What he did is he went to prisons, and he went specifically to places uh, and prisoners that were in jail for sexual crimes. So for people that had been rapists, child molesters, things like that. And he went and he conducted his surveys among some of the worst of the worst and the ugliest of the ugliest. And so he took those results and said, see, look how normal this is. Well, if I found a guy who thinks it's okay to beat puppies, right? Like just picks up puppies and punches them in the face. And if I was to ask him, hey, is that wrong? He's like, no, it's great. I love it. I'm having a blast, right? And so if you collect information from people who are, what even society today considers degenerates and sinful and some of the worst of the worst, and if you take your study from that pool of people, the results you get aren't reflective of normal society. But this is what he did, and it was much later after all this was exposed, but the damage had already been done. The sexual revolution had been started. People that had read this book and had become convinced early on that his findings were true and says, oh my gosh, we've got to change how we teach in schools. Uh, his work was done to kind of be the beginning uh, in the courts regarding laws against abortion, sodomy, homosexuality. All these things that we were arguing in the courts were based upon his scientific data that wasn't scientific at all. Um, there was an organization inspired by some of his work. The head of this organization was Dr. Uh, Mary Cauldron. Now, you might not know her, but you know the work that she did. She was a president of um, Planned Parenthood for a while. She was a medical director of Planned Parenthood. When she left that, because of the work of Kinsey, she wanted to help educate kids in school. So she became one of the founders of what we call sex ed. So sex ed in school is started by somebody who is influenced by Kinsey. Do you know that there is still right now a college called the Kinsey Institute? And their whole goal is to study sexuality. So a lot of the arguments that you might hear in pop culture come from the Kinsey Institute. Well, Kinsey wasn't even really a scientist regarding sexuality. So it's really muddy. The waters aren't healthy to swim in already. Um, here's what she said. She said, a new stage of evolution is breaking. And it's the job of educators to move children into that new horizon. In order to do so, they must pry children away from the old view and values, especially from religious laws and rules about sex that were made on the basis of ignorance. So being influenced by Ken, she, she saw, oh, there's a sexual revolution breaking. We need to teach kids. She wanted to go into kindergarten and teach kids about uh, homosexuality and all the different kinds of sexuality going on. She wanted to go into kindergarten and tell kids, just point blank, oh, here's all these different things you choose and you pick. 
Well, she said in order to do this, one of the things we're going to have to do first is break kids away from their religious ideas. So we see at the very earliest stages there's a war going on between how the world views sexuality and the world is very clear like in order to get this idea to go forward we're going to have to pry kids away from their old religious traditions. The first financial donor to um, the sex education that our government uh, helped co-sponsor was a guy we all know, Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner was one of the first and largest donors to sex ed. Now, why would Hugh Hefner be interested in donating money to educate kids about sex in school? Is he doing it out of the kindness of his heart? Because No, because he thinks what parents are telling kids isn't perverse enough. And if he can make everybody else a pervert, guess what he does? He gets rich. So he wants to help people become perverts like him. And because of some of the work that he done outside of this, we know what he did for a living, uh, all of a sudden, pornography now is the great American pastime. We'll get into a few of these studies here in a second. But did you know that pornography makes more money than baseball, football, baseball, and soccer combined every year in the United States? It makes more money. So if I was to ask you, what's a great American pastime? We say baseball or football, right? We say that's the great American pastime. No. Pornography is the great American pastime. There was actually a group that was trying to do a study to figure out what the effects of pornography are on the brain. There's actually some new good books out on this subject because nobody had been exposed to pornography like our generation has been exposed. So there was no studies on how this actually affects and rewires the brain. So what they were trying to do was a controlled study. And you know what a controlled study is? You have a group that's never viewed pornography and you compare it to a group that has viewed pornography. When they were trying to put together this study, they were looking for men in the age of 20 years old, uh, between 20 and 25. They were looking for guys in that age range who had never viewed pornography. You know what? They could not find a single one. They could not find a single male between the ages of 20 and 25 who had never been exposed to it. That's how prevalent it is in our culture today. Here's some statistics on this. Uh, and this is actually uh, from like... Uh, 2000, uh, I don't know, it's, it's several years old, and the, 2006, and so it's actually outdated. It's gotten much worse. Um, 4.2 million pornographic websites, that's 12% of all websites on the web, 12% of them are uh, dealing with pornography, 68 million uh, daily pornographic search engine requests, 25% of whatever gets Googled, 25% deals in pornography. 34% of average users received unwanted pornographic exposure. Have you ever? Man, even on my Instagram. I'm like, if I get a request and you can kind of see the request thing, I, I have to hand it to my wife and say, can you delete this request? Because I know what's going to happen if I click on it. It's a friend request from porn. It's all it is. And some websites, you just want to read a silly article. You're just like, oh, I want to read this article. And on the side are these banners. It's nothing but porn. Like, so even if you're trying to avoid it and you're not going to these websites, it's everywhere. It is really hard to avoid. 1.5 billion pornographic downloads per month. That is more than when people watch Hulu, right? So more people are watching porn than are watching Hulu. 42.7 of internet users view pornography. And 72 uh, million worldwide internet users visit adult sites per month. It gets worse. 116,000 daily requests for child pornography. 100,000 websites offer illegal child pornography, and the average age of first internet exposure uh, to porn is 11, 11 years old. Like I said, this is from 2006, it's lower now. Now they say it's around the age of seven. Seven years old, kids are being exposed to things that people in generations and generations before had never even dreamed of. The worst of the worst, and now they're seeing it at an unbelievably young age. Uh, why is all this important? Because if we're going to ask, we're born into a culture, we're born into a world that is extremely pro-gay, right? It's very pro-gay. The, the television shows are pro-gay. The movies are pro-gay. Uh, every television show has a, a gay, homosexual, bisexual, transgender character in there somewhere. It's almost necessary now. If you don't have that, then you're considered hateful, and why are you, you know, being a bigot? Why are you so full of hate? And all these kind of language. 
But we want to talk about why our world is the way it is now and, and ask ourselves, is it a safe and good place to ask the question, who am I regarding my sexuality when the world's view of it is in such shark-infested waters? We see where the world gets its view of sexuality. It comes based upon pseudoscience, based like Alfred Kinsey, his study and all that stuff was fake science. And then all of a sudden we have these people whose real goal is to pull their kids away from their religious ideas and all oh, these old outdated uh, antiquated ideas funded by a guy who's made his living in pornography. And then we see the explosion of pornography in our culture. And then our world wants to tell us that their view on sexuality is healthy and ours is wrong. But I would say it's the other way around. I would say anything that exposes seven-year-old kid or uh, gets people addicted to the kind of porn that's on the internet isn't a healthy place to get your view of sexuality from. Now, uh, before we go any further, I want to address uh, a couple of things. Whenever I bring up these subjects, there's a couple of objections. And I have these talks and conversations with Christians and non-Christians. Um, they always want to uh, apply the exception to the rule. So they'll say something, um, I, I know that hermaphrodite is not the correct term to use. I, there's another more politically correct term, but I don't know what it is. Um, but they say, well, what about this? See, people can be born this way. And it is true. It is true. There are people that are born that way. It is, it is very much the exception. We should never let the exceptions define the rules. But how many of you know somebody that have struggled with cancer? Does anybody have somebody in your family that has had cancer, right? Yeah. Almost every single person here is going to know somebody that's had cancer. Now, is cancer a healthy, normal trait, right? No, it, it's a genetic mutation that is extremely unhealthy. And we would never say, well, look how normal it is. Look how many people have it. We see that it's destructive. Just because something is normal and can be a biological reality does not mean it is something that is healthy that we should praise. There are biological realities that we can see because um, we know what is healthy and unhealthy according to God's Word. We can say, look, it might be a biological reality, but it's actually damaging. This is a part of the fall. It's what happens when you live in a fallen world. So, um, when I say there are people born with both male and female parts. This is very small. Um, this is like 0.03%. So, if that objection comes up when you have these conversations, and I know uh, the, the youth generation these days is, is extremely smart. So, they're going to hold on to these exceptions in, in face of these conversations. They're going to go, yeah, but, you know, what about this? And so I want to give you the tools to be able to answer, right? So you can say, well, there are things that people, uh, some children are even born with cancer. So what about being born this way? What about that argument, well, aren't people just born this way? How dare you deny me my sexuality? I was born this way. Can I tell you why that's a bad argument? Right? Have you ever met somebody that was born with a, they just say, well, I'm, I just was born with a bad temper. You have that friend that's just angry all the time, right? And they just, they lose their cool. And you're like, man, you need to chill out. Man, I can't help it. I was born this way. My family, my whole family has a temper. That's just an excuse. That just, it doesn't mean you were born that way. It just means you've been a jerk for a really long time, right? Like, you've just been a jerk for so long, you just start, it's like, man, ever since I was a baby, I was a jerk. That doesn't mean you were born that way. And let me give you another example of why, if you can justify your sexuality by saying, well, I was just born with this sexuality, then every kind of sexuality can make that same claim, and you have no way to say, actually, no, that's not right. That means a six-year-old man who's attracted to 12-year-old boys, if he says, no, I was born with this attraction, nobody in a healthy, the, the healthy gay, uh, lesbian, LGBT community is going to validate his excuse. They're not going to be, oh, well, no, he was born that way too. They're going to go, no, that's gross, that's disgusting, and rightfully so. But if he can use the same argument as them, then there's something wrong with that argument, isn't it? Then it might not be a very good argument to justify how you believe in, in sexuality, right? So that's, that's not a good one to use. Now, uh, this is the way God created us. Male and female. You either have an XX chromosome or you have XY chromosome. That's it. It is a biological fact. 
There uh, was a doctor, Dr. McHugh. He was one of the founders of uh, John Hopkins Hospital. He was the head psychiatrist in chief for 26 years. Now, John Hopkins is the medical institute that was at the forefront of the whole uh, sex change surgery. They were pioneers of it. They were the ones that kind of at the very ground level did the very first sex change um, uh, operation. But later on, they, they ceased that practice. They don't do it anymore. And there's reasons why. Uh, he said this, sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculine women. Claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention in a reality, uh, is in a reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. 80% of kids who feel transgender lose that feeling uh, after or during puberty. So it says all these kids that are struggling, you know, he says, well, when they hit puberty, 80% of them stop struggling. But what does our society want to do today? They want to begin to uh, give hormonal drugs to preteen boys and girls. They say, oh, here's an eight-year-old who feels this way. And of course, the parents have no encouragement in that. They're so excited to have somebody that's different. Oh, my son, he's special. He likes this. So, you know, I saw him putting on lipstick. That means he's, he's transgender. He's gay. Right? It used to be back in the day, if a girl liked to play baseball, uh, she was a tomboy. Now there's all of a sudden like all these cultural qualifications like, oh, if you like this, then you must be this. And it's stereotype. It's stereotyping and it's extremely unhealthy. We'll get into a lot more of that here in a second. Um, so even one of the people that was at the forefront of this sex change uh, culture, as a psychiatrist says, it is actually not healthy. And they are actually not changing. They're not transgender. It's actually a mental disorder called gender dysphoria. But they changed the name. They changed the name because nobody wants to say, oh, I have a mental disorder. We want to say how we feel is real. And it's okay, no matter how we feel. So um, if your grandpa thinks the radio is a microwave, you get him help, right? You don't tell everybody, um, no, no, we got to start calling the radio's microwaves now, right? We, we got to adjust for his culture. No, we, we just be honest and upfront. God created two genders in the beginning, male and female. So I want to move in now to, that's how the world got its view. I want to talk a little bit about the biblical worldview, and this is what your chart is. Uh, there are two, two categories that are both biological and physical, right? According to scripture, there are two categories. They're both biological and physical. The two categories, uh, men and women, child and adult. That's it. Men and women, child and adult. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.11 says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of a child behind me. Now, the reason this is so beautiful, I want you to think about how much freedom in Scripture is given regarding these different categories. The Bible says very little about what makes a man a man. It doesn't tell us that, okay, guys, if you're going to be a man, it's muscle car and ninja movies, right? That, that's all you can like. If you like to watch Beauty and the Beast and you love musicals, there's something wrong with you and you're in the woman category. No, it actually gives you great freedom to express your manhood. It doesn't try to define you and put you into these different categories. When I was growing up, I never liked the same music as my friends. My friends, they, they liked rock or whatever is contemporary. One day, uh, I was the first one to have a car in my group of friends, and they all got in the car, and I was like, man, you guys are gonna love this. I got this new tape. You're gonna like, a tape is something that would slide in, I don't know. Uh, I got this new tape, and they got in the car, they're like, all right, let's hear it. And I put it in, and it was a spoken word poetry tape, right? And I was huge into poetry. I loved poetry. It was Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors. I was like, who doesn't like The Doors, right? Come on, baby, light my fire. But he had a spoken word poetry album, and I loved poetry. And so I put it in. I'm like, hey, wait till you hear this poem. I didn't know nobody else did that. My friends were like, uh, we might need to get out of the car. Like, they just didn't know what was going on with me. And I still, to this day, I'm probably the biggest Sinead O'Connor fan. And anybody know who Sinead O'Connor is? Uh, she's a little bald Irish uh, folk musician, right? I love folk music. I want my music so slow. If it was any slower, it stopped, right? I just want it really, really slow. I don't like, you know, heavy metal or anything like that. I like slow, sensitive, soft music. I still feel like I'm a poet at heart. 
I like art. So growing up, all my friends were reading like Auto Trader, trying to figure out what mufflers they wanted to put on their Mustang. And I barely knew how to turn my car on. But what I wanted to do was draw and write my feelings down. Right? I couldn't find a group that did that. And so if I was in today's culture, I was a gymnast, right? I did gymnastics, I liked poetry and sensitive music. If I was a young man struggling with sexuality in today's culture, and I was growing up, and those were the things that I enjoyed, how would the world classify me? It's okay to say it, right? Like, if, if that was the way I was right now, my, your friends would be like, I think he's gay. Wouldn't they? He likes gymnastics. Listen, he's listening to poetry. Look at him over there writing his feelings down, right? And I was a short guy too, so I was short and like I didn't weigh 100 pounds until like junior year. So I was just a little bitty guy over there in the corner writing his feelings down, drawing, you know? And culturally, but you know what? The Bible gives you so much freedom. And that's the wonderful thing about having Christian parents. I never had that struggle. I never worried about what my sexuality was. I wasn't struggling with that. I knew who I was in Christ. But I, I knew that I could express myself and not be condemned for it because the Bible doesn't tell you if you're a man, you better look like this. Or if you're a woman, you better wear a dress, you better play with dolls, and you don't want to have a job or a career. Your goal is to have 12 kids and stay at home, right? You better learn how to cook and sew. The Bible doesn't put those limitations on you. The Bible gives you a lot of freedom. In Scripture, we see women who are business owners and men who are sensitive poets. There is a place that the Bible gives regulation when it comes to men and women, children and adults. Do you know what it is? It is not in uh, how you act or what your personality is. It comes into how you relate with one another. That's pretty much the only places where it tells you how you should act. For example, children obey your parents. Parents don't provoke your children. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. So all these ways that the Bible gives direction for how you should be as a child or an adult or a husband or a wife or a man or a woman don't come in how you express your sexuality because the Bible's not going to buy into the lie that your sexuality defines you. That's not what defines you according to Scripture. It gives you freedom in those things. What it does is give us instruction for how we interact with another because we are meant to live in community. This is why I can say Jesus was never a teenager. We understand the men and women part, but also the child and adult part. Jesus was never a teenager, and you might hear some of this a little bit later on. But at the age of 12, Jesus is going to the temple. He leaves his mom and dad behind, and he's sitting there, and he's listening, and he's even teaching and answering questions and talking along with the other adults. Now, there was, he was in his teen years, but this teenager, this is an invented term. Do you know teenager isn't a term that the world invented? It was uh, in 1941, issue of Popular Science magazine. Before that, there was no such thing as a teenager. You could be an adult in your teens, but you were not a teenager. There was not this big adolescent transition phase. If I was to ask you, when do you become an adult? When do you become an adult now? How old do you have to be to drive? 16. All right, somebody. How, I mean, you have to be 16 years old. How old do you have to be to smoke cigarettes? 18. 18. How do you know that? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> six. Yeah, no, 18. Uh, how old do you have to be to drink alcohol? 21. How old do you have to be to rent a car? 25. 25. So when do you become an adult? Are you an adult because you can drive? Well, kids can't drive, right? Well, no, you must be an adult at 16. Well, no, because there's still things you can't do. You can't go buy cigarettes at 16. You have to wait till you're 18. So maybe then you're an adult because that's an adult thing to do, right? Or maybe it's 21 because, you know, you're not an adult until you can have a beer with your friends, right? So maybe it's 21, but then you still can't rent a car. So the world's saying, well, you might be an adult. No, you're not. You might be an adult. No, you're not. You might be an adult. No, you're not. The world has no way of telling you whether you're an adult or not. But the Bible doesn't give you this big realm of like, uh, wandering, floating around years of just like, well, I don't know when I'm going to grow up. The Bible's like, pretty much you go from being a child to an adult. And Jesus, in the regular bar mitzvah, it was 12 or 13 years old. You went from being a child, now you're an adult. Christianity actually should be your rite of passage. Christianity should be what makes you an adult. Because all of a sudden, where you didn't have any significant tasks, you didn't have any responsibilities, you get saved as a believer, and all of a sudden you're going to uh, middle school or you're 12 years old, 
Now all of a sudden it is your job to be the missionary to your friends. You have a real significant task and if you don't do it, your friends around you will suffer when it comes to the gospel. So Christianity should be your rite of passage. If you are a Christian, guess what? Nobody in here is a child. Nobody in here is a teenager. Every single one of you is an adult. That's why I wasn't afraid to talk to you about sexuality. This isn't something like at church, typically, we would be like, okay, we're going to bring in a special guest speaker. Everybody, no giggling, right? No, I can talk to you like an adult because guess what? You're an adult. You're an adult, according to Scripture. Now, um, the world has made it much more confusing. Uh, these four categories are what is called part of the ancient path. Jeremiah 6.16 says, uh, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find a rest for your souls. So there is peace when we conform to the natural order that God has created. The natural order that God has created is male and female, young and adult. Child and adult. That's the natural order. And we see it all throughout history and all throughout society. These are the natural orders. And so Scripture says when we return to the ancient past the way God thing has designed it for, there is actually peace. Now everybody who's looking for sexuality outside of these is actually looking for the same thing. They're looking for peace. But they're not going to find it. This is why it's important for us to show them that Jesus is better than homosexuality. Jesus is better than bisexuality or transgender. Jesus is actually better. It's not just about, hey, you need to stop being a sinner because you're going to go to hell. It's about, let me actually show you why the good news is good news. So I want to contrast, compare for you a little bit. Let's look at how the world views these categories. We have man and woman on one end, on the top, and in between is LGBTQZ. Now what is Z, you're asking? I had to look up, I wanted to make sure I, in my research I got all this right. I was like, okay, I know LGBTQ, but it literally changes like every month, right? There's always something added. So I wanted to know what was current. And according to uh, one of their websites, um, says this. Uh, this is from a, a, a gay and lesbian community website that I found. They say it, the proper one is LGBTTQQIAA. And then a Z for the other ones. What are the other ones? Do you even know about these? Let me tell you what those stands for. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirited, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, and an ally. But then they said, but there's more that aren't added to that because nobody would remember that acronym if it was any longer. There's also pansexual, agender, genderqueer, bigender, gender variant, and pangender. So whenever you walk away from the ancient past, we have to invent new terms to make us feel like it's okay. So when we walked away from the just being child and adult, all of a sudden we had to create the term teenager, right? We had to create these new terms. When we walk away from uh, male and female, we have to invent the word transgender. Transgender is a new word. It's an invented word. So is teenager. The world says they don't like labels, but all they do is create labels all day long. They love to invent new words. They love to create new categories that you somehow have to fit into. So that's sexuality, but what about age? There's another same level of confusion as there is in sexuality. There's child, adolescent, which they now say is from between the age of 9 and 23. So you can be 23 year old and be an adolescent. Wouldn't that be kind of humiliating? Then there's a teenager. There's a moderate adult, an adult, and a post-adult. So moderate adult, adult, and post-adult. What is a moderate adult? A moderate adult is somebody who has a college degree. They have the education and the knowledge of an adult, but they don't know how to apply that knowledge in an adult way. So they move back home in their mom's basement and they spend all day playing video games while they're a barista at Starbucks. So they have this expensive adult education. They grow an adult beard, right? They got an adult man bun. Nobody, it's not going to man buns, right? Uh, they, they, ha they have the beard and they, they use adult language and they have adult hobbies. You know, they brew beer at home and they, they do all these adult activities, but they're not responsible. They're not self-sufficient. They're still living at home with their mom. They're avoiding and delaying real responsibility as long as possible. I can't tell you how many uh, moderate adults I know who had like 12 years at college and they're not doctors, right? 
they just wanted to stay in college for as long as possible because mom and daddy were paying for it and they had this cool room with their friends and they were taking like three classes a semester and you know they were just really involved in their ping pong team you know they're just doing all they can to delay adult responsibility and then we know what an adult is but what a, what's a post-adult a post-adult is now when people retire, instead of going, okay, it is my job as a grandparent to pour into this next generation, to disciple and equip them. This is actually what Scripture says to do, that the older women are to teach the younger, and the older men are to teach the younger men. It's called discipleship. Now what they want to do is they want to do the same thing. They want to avoid responsibility. They say, I've been responsible my whole life. I raised my kids. I worked my job. I've saved up all my money. Now I want to buy the RV and I want to go here, here, and here, and here. And I just want to, I just want to live life carefree. Well, that sounds like a nice dream and I want to do that too. But while I am here on earth, I have a responsibility to mentor and disciple those beneath me. So this is why for many of you, you've never had an older person mentor you. You've never had a senior adult in your church pour into you. They've never come to your youth group. They've never come to your class and sat down and told you about how they grew in Christ. Because we just have this huge generational disconnect now where it's just totally separate. And so we see that these stereotypes that the world creates creates confusion. Now, according to the world, if you are a gymnast who's sensitive you, you know, my wife calls me the, the crying pastor because I like if I start getting into something that's moving, I can, I can just cry the drop of a hat. I'm sensitive. I like poetry and gymnastics and I like spoken word music and folk music. You know, the world would say, OK, you fit in this category. So for a world that hates labels and it hates stereotypes, all it has done is create labels and stereotypes. And it says, if you have this personality, you fit in here. And it's not even based upon anything like really deep. It just takes your likes. How do you talk? Do you have a lisp? Okay, well, you're over here. Or, or if you're not a jock, right? If you're not, if you're not this, or if, even if you are a jock. Okay, so you like football, and you like heavy metal music, you're in this category. You're a jock. You like math, you're a nerd. And all they want to do is take things that you like and make those things stick to you for the rest of your life and say, now you fit in this category. When I was growing up, I was a class clown. I was called a class clown all the time. So guess what? I felt like I had to like, fit that role. So even though I knew I should be like, paying attention, I would crack jokes because that would get me the attention I needed. And I was like, well, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just always be the class clown. Because once the world puts you into one category, it's extremely hard to break out of it, isn't it? Once they say, oh, you're like this, and this is why it's so hard if you get like a reputation at school, it's so hard to break out of that. You have to like literally go find a new group of friends or you transfer schools because it's so hard to escape these categories they put people into. And there's a lot of pressure to fit into these categories. Now, when it comes to sexuality, the world has prepackaged an entire identity based upon sexuality. So if somebody who's struggling trying to figure out who they are, the world says, pick one of these. If you're gay, guess what? You have your own way of dressing, your own way of talking, you get your own clubs, you have your own TV shows. There's an entire gay channel on the cable news network. You get your own channel, you have your own movies, you have your own bars, and, and like either your entire life has been pre-written and defined for you. You will start here and you will finish here. And when it comes to the clothes you wear, there's oh, our culture will tell you how to dress. When it comes to the friends you have, our culture will tell you where to hang out with. When it comes to the movies you like and the shows you watch, oh, our culture will tell you what you like. That's not freedom. There's no freedom in that. The Bible is the one that actually gives you the freedom to be who you are without trying to fit into these narrow categories. When all this transgender stuff really started to explosion, you know, Caitlyn Jenner uh, was the one that kind of brought it really up to the forefront when he, uh, she, when uh, they came out and were like, okay, I'm now a woman. I made a comment on Facebook. I said, watch what will happen next. I said, somebody is going to come out and say they were born in the wrong race, right? Somebody's going to come up and say, you know what, um, I'm actually, I'm not Caucasian. I was born in the wrong race. No more than like two weeks later, a lady who had been a part of um, an African-American society 
was exposed as actually being Caucasian. She, she had gotten a college scholarship for African-American kids. She didn't have any African-American cells in her body. She was a white redhead girl. But she had dyed her hair and she had been constantly tanning. And when she got caught on it, you know what she said? She says, well, I've always felt like an African-American on the inside. And the proper term you need to call me is transracial. That's a made-up term because she was caught in a lie, which is a sin. When the world is caught in a sin, we just create a new category that says, no, it's okay. Because we have a term for it. We have a name for it. That is what Scripture says we will do. Um, God says biology determines sexuality. We have said that our feelings determine sexuality. We have become, instead of image bearers, we are now image creators. Instead of image bearers, and that's on your notes there, image bearers, we have now become image creators. You were created to be imagers of God. And you can image God whether you're the poetic, soft man. You can still lead your family. I, I'm, I'm still, you know, look, I, I still have that part of me. But guess what? I also, like, I drive a Harley and I'm covered in tattoos. And so the world's like, I, I don't know what to do because you don't fit into one area. My best friend owns a semi-truck business, has hot rod tattoos on his arm, and is one of the top ten ballet dancers in the U.S., right? So he's a ballet dancer who owns a semi-truck business. And he's built like a linebacker. The world, they're always fascinated by that. Because he doesn't fit a stereotype. They don't know what to do with people who don't fit into categories. But the Bible knows that you're complex. The psalm says that our souls are deep waters. That there is complexity to you. You can't be just defined by just one thing for the rest of your life. Some of you might be one way for a little bit in your personality. You might be really outgoing. Then later on you might be shy. Some of you are shy now and later on you're going to be a street preacher out there yelling. And so the world doesn't know what to do when you change. But the Bible gives you that freedom to be who you are. So I can like poetry and art, and I, I can like watching UFC and bloody noses and um, riding my Harley and tattoos. I, I can like all those things. The world's the one that wants to imprison you, not God. The rules when it comes to sexuality, the world thinks, are the fence of a prison, but they're the walls of a playground. They're the walls of a playground so that you can play safely, not trying to rob you of freedom. Romans 1, 24-30 says this, Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations. So we see there's natural. There's such a thing as a natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women who were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And here's the last part. They invent ways of doing evil. They invent ways. What have we been talking about this whole time? Invention of categories. People, when they're caught in sin, they like to invent categories. And the New Testament is saying, you know it gets really, really bad when the women start to sin the same way the men are. That was his sign. He's like, it's gotten so bad, even the women have exchanged their natural sexual desires for unnatural ones. He says, that's how you know things really gone off the tracks. So the world, as we saw, because we just thought it was LGBTQ. They've already created all these other ones because they are obsessed with creating categories. The world is obsessed. It is the world that's constantly like, are you liberal or conservative? Are you this or are you that? Are you Republican? Are you Democrat? They're always trying to take somebody and just shove them in some little tiny box. 
Because people who are slaves to sin don't like freedom. They don't know how to deal with freedom. And we as Christians, we're supposed to role model what freedom actually looks like. So that's how we got here. Now what do we do about it? Like I said, teenager was an invented term. That's why I call this uh, talk Jesus and the transgender teenager because neither of those things exist. Only Jesus exists. A teenager and the transgender are made up terms. So we always want to take people back to the one term that's real. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I was a youth pastor for seven years, I refused to treat people like they were kids, right? So I, I, I wouldn't talk down to the middle schoolers. I'm like, so guys, do you have your Bible open to Mark, right? Find page 12. I'm not going to talk to him like that because I think that you guys are smarter, more responsible than the world gives you credit for. A young Jewish kid oftentimes would have the Torah memorized by the age of 13. Genesis through Malachi, memorized. So I don't have low expectations. I think we should raise our expectations for what you guys are capable of. And I think you should raise the expectation within yourself of what you are capable of. You are smarter than people give it credit for. You can, you can be more responsible than your parents sometimes might give you credit for. Now, the thing is, is you're going to have to act more responsible if you want to receive that. And if you want to continue to have people treat you as an adult, you have to act like an adult. So I didn't treat them like a kid because I wanted to role model for them that the Bible doesn't have that term teenager in there. That is not a biblical term. I'm not going to use it. And the same thing when it comes to transgender or gay, I'm not going to use those terms. I'm not going to buy into the world's definitions. I'm going to treat people the way the Bible defines them, not by the way the world has defined them. And the world, uh, or the scripture has defined them, that they are created in the image of God. They are image bearers of God. So I'm not going to define them by their sinfulness. I'm not going to point out and be like, that is not my main concern. My main concern is that they know the gospel because the gospel will transform everything else. We, as a Christian culture, we tend to narrow in and just focus on their sin. And there is a sin issue. But why would a lost person ever repent of their sin? A lost person doesn't even think it is sin. They're not going to know it's a sin until God does a transforming work in their life. And so we work on transforming their heart and their mind through the Word and the Gospel. I don't buy into the world's definitions. I walk them back to the ancient paths of God and I tell them about why it's better. So um, let me give you a practical example of this. John 4, 13 through 18, there's this story about um, a Samaritan woman at the well. And it says this, verse 13, John 4, 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me the water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now there's a beautiful example in here of how Jesus is doing ministry. First, Jesus tells her that there is freedom. Right? There is real freedom that exists. Uh, he's A, he's at the well with somebody that the rest of the religious people would never have been at the well with. Late afternoon, she's a Samaritan woman. Jesus is a Jew. They don't hang out together. They're considered unclean. They're dirty. Um, she's there later in the day because she's embarrassed. She probably got a reputation as a promiscuous woman, right? Probably the rest of the town knew her as, oh, watch. You better keep your husbands, you know, uh, inside. Here she comes. You better watch out. She's already been through five husbands. She's not even with the, uh, she's not even married to the guy she's with now. She probably had this terrible reputation and people avoided her. This is often the way the church treats the rest of the world right now. But what does Jesus do? Jesus walks up and he doesn't go, oh, so you're that slut. Jesus treats her as though she is a child of God and just talks to her like a person. She's a human being. That's what defines her. She's created the image of God. And as he begins to have a conversation, and she's getting water from the well. 
He says, let me tell you about a water, a well that never runs dry. And if you were to drink from this, you would be satisfied. Well, why has she run from man to man to man to man? She's just trying to be satisfied with herself. And so many, a part of the fall, if you read Genesis, there's two consequences of the fall. Men, we try to find our identity in our work. Women try to find their identity in their relationships. This is why men often become workaholics and avoid their family and cause damage. This is why women often have a new best friend every three weeks, right? She's my best friend. I love her. And then all of a sudden they get in one little argument and they, they have a new best friend. This is oftentimes why, and you all know this girl, as soon as, I mean, she had this boyfriend, they've been together a week, they're in love. It's all she talks about. She's been writing her new name because she's planning on getting married as soon as they get out of high school. And they are just so in love. And they break up and her life is ruined for the four minutes that she's single. Then she's got another boy, right? And she goes from guy to guy because she doesn't know who she is unless a guy is treating her a certain way. So this is for guys and girls. We try to find our identities in different ways. And Jesus understands that she is trying to find peace within herself through the relationships with men. And she is starving to death. She is so hungry for something real, for something meaningful, that she didn't even bother to marry this latest guy because she knows where that road goes. But she doesn't know what else to do with her life. So Jesus presents the gospel. He says, I know something that could satisfy what you're looking for. He's not the one that points out her sin. She brings it up. He says to her, go call your husband and come back. He doesn't say, so I, I know how many times you've been married. He says, I know, I know how bad you are. He just asks, tell me, tell me about your life. Tell me about where you hurt. Tell me about your love life. And all of a sudden she breaks, she says. I mean, it had to be embarrassing, didn't it? I, I don't have a husband. I mean, a woman who's not married at that age in this community, you're, you're, you're this close to being on the corner asking for money because no one's going to take care of you. She's this close to being homeless. She says, I don't, I don't have one. He goes, I know. In fact, I know how bad it really is. I know how many husbands. And then he doesn't condemn her for it. He lets her know, I know you should drink from the water that I'm offering you. He wants to show her that his way is better. The gospel is better than homosexuality. The gospel is better than the bisexual, transgender, gay movement. It actually brings people peace that they'll never find in that community. It brings them satisfaction that they'll never find in that community. So I say, the gospel is better than what people are trying to find in abortion. It's better than all the hot top, top, topic, red button issues that we don't want to deal with. We need to start dealing with it. And you need to realize that the gospel is better than whatever the conclusion the world has come to. And I don't just say this, oh, because it's the biblical thing to say. I have seen this in real life. I worked at Blockbuster for many years. Blockbuster is a video store that used to, it's a dinosaur, right? Uh, which is weird because when I was growing up, you know what I wanted to do? You know what my dream job was? Is to own a video store. Like, technology had just robbed me of my dream. Like, like there's impossible to do that now. Like, you can't own a video store anymore. Um, but I worked at Blockbuster for a while and my boss was gay. He wasn't just like kind of gay. He was like a gay superhero. He was so flamboyant. Like, he was super gay. Super gay, right? He would, on Halloween, he would wear a fireman's hat with fairy wings. And you say, well, what is your costume? He'd say, well, I'm a flaming fairy, right? And that was his costume. And I mean, so we're not just talking like kind of gay. We're talking like cartoon character gay. Like it was just super gay. And we were friends and we had a lot of conversations. And he grew up Catholic and he had a pretty good knowledge of scripture. And one day in a real person-to-person, -person, sincere conversation, asking about his culture. Because I was a new believer at the time, and I was trying to understand how all this worked. I asked him, so you know, the Bible says this, but you know, you seem like a happy person. He corrected me. He says, I know we all seem happy. He says, our exuberance and the amount that we try to put out there in the world of just how happy we are, he says, that's all a front. 
He says, a gay bar is the most depressing place you'll ever go. And this is coming from a guy, openly gay, flamboyantly so, telling me the truth from his heart. And so I'm, I'm just getting this right from the source, and I was, I was flabbergasted. And he says, the majority of the people there are addicts or have been abused one way or another as a kid. He then begins to tell me, he says, I know I am the way I am because my uncle molested me as a kid. And I'm sitting there. These are things that maybe we had thought and we had questions about. And he's telling me, even though I act happy, I'm lost. He says, but this culture, this community will accept you no matter what. He says, whether you're a drug addict, whether you're an alcoholic, whatever it is, he says, they don't care because they're all so desperate for community. We've just created our own. See, the church, instead of helping people through their sin, kicked sinners out. We said, oh, no, no, not that one, not that one. You get out, you get out. And so we've closed off our doors and built up our walls, so they had to build their own community. So a lot of what the world is going through is because we have rejected them. We have forgotten how to love the outside world. Now, you can love somebody and tell them the truth. You, you, can, you can, in fact, it is loving to tell somebody the truth. Now, uh, I don't want you to underestimate the power of the gospel. Because a lot of people think that trying to pull somebody out of that community, and it's just too, it's too difficult. It'll never happen. But that's underestimating the power of the gospel. There has been life after life transformed from people who were uh, actively gay, living that lifestyle, to the fullest degree, get saved by the gospel. Convert, maybe marry a woman, right? Later on. In fact, I, I have a, uh, uh, a person I know who grew up really struggling, going back and forth, trying to figure out. They would have homosexual relationships, they would have regular relationships. They couldn't figure out who they were. They got saved and they totally got rid of one side and said, okay, this is, this is what God has called me to do. Now, can Christians struggle with same-sex attraction? Of course. It's like asking, can a teenage boy struggle with pornography? Of course. The lust unchecked are extremely sinful. Now, they can struggle with it. To act upon that is a sin, right? When we act upon our lustful thoughts or actions, those are sinful. And we need to guard our mind, guard our hearts, guard our eyes, make sure you don't put yourself in those environments. But God can redeem that as well. So just because, but here's the last thing we want to do, is we don't want to ever define somebody as a, by their sin. When all of a sudden they say, okay, I am my sin, I am this. That's when they really get into trouble, isn't it? That's, you don't want me to define you by your sin, right? And like, oh, so you're a gossiper. No, I, sometimes I gossip, it's bad. Nope, nope, if you've gossiped before, you're a gossiper. And no gossipers allowed in the church. We would never do that, but we have chosen to do that with homosexuality. So, um... Christians can experience same-sex attraction, but to act on those lusts are sinful, and we should join in praying with those people that God would free them. There's a couple of categories that weren't mentioned. Just two other categories. That's the categories of lost and found. You once were lost, and now you were found. And because you were created in the image of God, it is your job to tell the good news to those who are struggling as well. Show the world that there is more freedom in the male, female, child, and adult than there is in the world creating as many possible labels as they can, trying to help people figure out where they go when God says there's freedom. There's freedom in the gospel. You can be, you can be the best entrepreneurial woman in the world and be a good, godly Christian woman. You can be a sensitive, poetic man and be a strong, godly man. Don't let the world define you. Enjoy the freedom that God has given you. Thank you guys for listening. Let me pray and we'll close with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for the freedom of the gospel. It truly is freedom. You say it is for freedom that we have been set free. So God, I pray that today we've learned how to better deal and engage those in the community that have bought into the false narrative of lesbian, gay, transgender as being normative. And they're working so hard to try to make everybody feel like, no, it's normal, it's normal, it's normal. Well, our sinfulness, 
Father, it displeases you. It breaks your heart. You're a good, loving parent. And you hate to see us struggle so much. So I, I pray right now for the friends that we have, that we know, that are gay or lesbian, transgender, bisexual, whatever it is. They, got, they wouldn't hear this talk. They wouldn't hear this message and think that we're full of hate. But they would know that God loves them so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for their sin and my sin. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you did for us on the cross. All God's people said, thank you guys very much for paying attention. That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, when it comes to... Uh, an image bearer, sometimes we think that means that we have certain like characteristics that God has, right? Like, well, you have free will, or um, you have conscious thought, or you, you can, you have some kind of sense of morality. We think that's what it means to be an image bearer, but that's not what that means. Because there, that would mean that certain people bear less of the image of God than others. Because a baby uh, doesn't have a sense of morality. Well, does that mean they have less the image of God? Um, there are certain people who grow in adulthood with certain disabilities that might not be fully conscious in the same way that we are. Does that mean they bear less of the image of God? Well, that's not what it means. It, it means uh, that you are um, image bearers, that just by being human, you have the image of God within you. And that means you have a role to live. See, um, Scripture is... Uh, more about giving you roles than labels, and there's a big difference. A label sees how you act on the outside and then tries to slap a narrow label on you, right? A role that God gives says, here's a role. You can have this, person or this personality or this personality to fulfill that role. So what God wants to do is He has roles for you to live. As a woman, there is a role. As a man, there is a role for you to give. But those roles are freeing. I can fulfill the role as the head of my household. Whether I'm soft or loud, whether I'm sensitive or strong, I can, I can fulfill that role with a great deal of freedom. So the Bible gives us roles, and the very first role it gives us is to be an image bearer. Now anybody can be an image bearer of God, even a child, right? Because they can show loving and kindness, it is just their role that is to be fulfilled. See, we think it means attributes, like, okay, well, you know, but it, it's much better and much deeper. Because as soon as you become a Christian, it tells you, here's your role to begin to live out. Micah 6.8 says, Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, for this is the whole duty of man. So it says you have a duty, you have a role, and you're to act justly, and love mercy, and walk humbly with God. So every single one of you has that role as an image bearer. And when it comes to, uh, when you go to school, some of you hate going to school, but you have a role there. Whether or not you enjoy academics doesn't define you. You have a role that can be defined um, either way. Oh, you were smiling. Because it came up as recording this in the message. Oh, no, oh, how funny. There, yeah. um, so does that, does that help make sense? Okay, there's a difference. Uh, the image bearer and image creator. Uh, those who create image create labels. An image bearer has roles to fulfill. Um, I think, okay, so the question is, is how can this generation take back the culture when we seem to be uh, against overwhelming odds? And as you say, uh, Kinsey, changed it. Kinsey changed it with lies, we change it with truth. So the gospel is the transformative power. There's several ways that we do that. First, we do it by living out our roles. Um, and let me kind of explain why that's so important. Because even though Kinsey had influence, it was not his influence that changed everything. It's what he taught parents that parents then taught their kids. Right? So the final deciding factor of whether or not this information was true is put out there by the outside world, but it's the parents that validate it. So all of a sudden you had a generation of parents that were validating what somebody else was saying. So it begins in the home. The number one way we're going to change the culture is not through some great street preaching strategy, even though that's good and that's part of uh, any kind of strategy to go out into the lost world and engage. The number one way that you're going to make the most change is by fulfilling your role um, when you become parents, if you become parents. You don't have to become a parent, but your main job is to minister to your family. So the best thing I can do is to disciple my kids. 
I have, uh, I'm a pastor of two different places, right? I pastor here at Logos and I pastor at my home. Biblically speaking, the criteria to be able to be a preacher, if you can't pastor your home, you can't pastor a church. So I have to be a really good pastor at my home. Now this is the role given to man and woman. When they come together, they fully reflect the image of God. We are supposed to come together and be God to our kids. We're supposed to show them this is what God looks like. And so you need to begin in the mindset that you are going to date and you are going to marry somebody that has their role in good understanding. Uh, it is not just about, oh, we're not just getting married for happiness, even though that is a part of it. Marriage is more about happiness. It's also about holiness, that we are going to raise up our family to be fighters against false truth. So um, every single one of you need to be have the mindset and be Preparing, Like, how do I want to disciple my kids? It's, it's never too early to begin to look into that. How am I going to minister to my children so that they know how to engage the culture in an honest way? So the first way it does, we, we spread this truth, is through our own kids. And then also says, if you decide not to have kids, that's fine. Scripture says that if you don't have kids, then you are more open and have more free time to go out and proclaim the gospel. So... Single men and women have a role. Married men and women have a role. right? And both of them deal with being pastors and preachers and teachers and mentors and servants of the body of Christ to help them equip and grow. And then uh, I think the final thing I should say is when it comes to taking this back, why do we assume that we are going to win this war? The narrow path is narrow. right? So the narrow path is still narrow. The narrow path is never going to turn into a superhighway. The, the world is going to love its sin. No matter how hard we preach, the world is going to love its sin. What we do is we find those who are open for the gospel. We love those, whether they convert or not. Look, it's not about trying to... If I love somebody with an agenda, I'm not really loving them. I, I just might... I've been called to love people, right? Not every single person that Jesus loved on got saved. But He loved them anyways. He loved them anyways. So we give the world an example of what it looks like to live this truth out.